Our scripture lesson for today is from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 13. And I want to read through verse chapter 5 and verse 1. 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through chapter 5 and verse 1. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with scripture, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we speak. Because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will bring us with you into his presence. Yes, everything is for your sake so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but what cannot be seen is eternal. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. This is the word of God for the people of God. Summertime and the living is easy or hot or filled with bugs and snakes and it's not my favorite season of the year and this too shall pass. Um, I've been praying for October since about the first of May and... um, (laughs) And that prayer will be answered in due time, I'm sure. But I am feeling good about this new series that I want to start today in traditional worship. It'll be an off-again, on-again series that will continue through the end of September. And the title of the series is Take a Letter. And it's based somewhat loosely on the second reading in the lectionary on Sundays, the epistle lesson. The epistle. An epistle simply means a letter written and a letter sent. Contrary to the beliefs of some folks that I've talked to over the years, an epistle is not the spouse of an apostle. (laughs) And for today, the letter of the day will be 2 Corinthians, written by the apostle Paul, who, by the way, was not married to an epistle or to anyone else as far as we know. Now, how many popular songs have been written across the years that have to do with letters? Writing a letter, receiving a letter. You're thinking of some already. You may be humming some of those tunes already. I like many of those songs, and I I think about them. I tried to recall a few of them. Please, Mr. Postman, check and see if there's a letter in your bag for me. Well, she wrote me a letter and said she couldn't live without me anymore. And then one of... The ones that sticks in my mind, I'm not sure why. Take a letter, Maria, address it to my wife. Send a copy to my lawyer. I'm going to have a new life. So uh, it's uh, not a very edifying and not a very uplifting song. But if you want to check out the lyrics sometimes, just uh, feel free to do that. A guy named R.B. Greaves wrote the song, and I believe he recorded it as well. And then if you listen to it, you'll understand why it was a one-hit wonder kind of thing. Uh, Take a letter. 
series of sermons, letter writing, many folks say it's becoming a lost art, rapidly becoming a lost art. Electronic correspondence has pretty much taken over and relegated letter writing to a very small corner of the communications universe. Blessed be those linguistic artists who can still put pen to paper in order to comfort or inform or encourage or inspire and sometimes to correct or to chastise. Letter writing, how many of us have somewhere in the back of a drawer and a dresser at the house or maybe in a box in the basement or maybe in a tub in the attic a stack of letters? Maybe they're tied together with a ribbon or a bow or string or maybe a rubber band that is dried out and, and broken. Letters that mean, a, mean the world to, to somebody, maybe even folks before our time. Letters postmarked from here, there, and everywhere. And when I mentioned this at 8.30, someone told me after the service they were recently back home. And we're going through letters, and some of the letters had been written back even in the 1800s. And what this woman said to me really made me think. She said, after reading some of those letters, I'm rethinking the way I remember some of my kinfolks. So uh, sometimes we learn things about people in a good way, maybe not such a good way, but in a good way too. We learn what people were, were really, really like. These letters have no real monetary value unless they were moved from point A to point B with a stamp on the envelope that somewhere along the way has become rare and valuable and and collectible. Letters that, sentimentally speaking, are priceless. And most of these once written letters have been read several times over and then maybe put away for decades. There are, of course, letters that are very valuable from a monetary point of view. Letters maybe written by sports figures or historical figures or political leaders or celebrities or other folks across the years. And some of these letters are so valuable that they're found only in museums underneath a thick sheet of glass and protected by security guards and cameras. Letters written and letters received over the course of our lives have the direction of our life ever been changed because we wrote one of these letters or received one of these missives. Christianity has been shaped across the years by the reading and studying of old letters. Christians reading the New Testament letters written in a different time and a different place to different people, whether we read them in worship or studying them privately or engage with them in some kind of a Bible study, these letters still speak to us. But like many letters written from an earlier age, they present some interpretive challenges. Who was writing the letter? What do we know about that person? Where was the letter going? Who would receive this letter? And what do we know about those people? All those kind of things help us to understand, especially when there's a curious expression or a line in the letter or a reference to something that just doesn't resonate with us, something we don't remember. Maybe some obscure comment that reflected letter writing practices at a certain time in history, but no more. Since typically letters were written on perishable materials, not many were written in stone like other documents, 
Most have perished, those from ancient times, but some have been preserved, especially those found in desert-type climates, fragments and pieces of letters, thousands of them in some places. Ancient folk were letter writers, and early letter writers would often use clay tablets, but by Greco-Roman times were quick, short letters, Potsherds, the sherds from pottery were used, just little fragments of broken pottery. Folks didn't waste anything, I suppose, and they would take these fragments and write letters on them as if it were a tablet, and then it could be passed on to someone else, and some of those have been, been discovered. Tablets were often used for private letters and temporary notes, but papyrus, more than parchment, appears to have been the quote, paper of choice for, for these ancient letter writers. None of the Old Testament documents are in letter form. More than a dozen are embedded in the Old Testament. In contrast, 21 books of the New Testament are in letter form, 13 at least attributed to the Apostle Paul. And in Old Testament style, two letters are embedded in the book of Acts. When you read through that next time, look for those. Other letters are mentioned in scripture, but they are now lost. And we don't know what the writer was referring to. And it would be so interesting, so exciting to know where those letters were, if they had been preserved in any way. Existing New Testament letters have much in common with the Greco-Roman letters. These letters have a set of structure and a set of content, and it's different from today, the way people would write a letter. You remember in school back in the day when we were taught how to write letters and what would come first in the body of the letter and how to, how to put a letter together. Even family letters back then had generic greetings, set phrases, standardized wishes for good health. That seems to have carried over. Transition to the body of letter was stereotype formulas, things like, I want you to know that and how astonished I am that. And those phrases were used to introduce different parts of the letter. The letter closed with admonitions, with greetings, with well wishes. And sometimes, if we're fortunate, with a date. So we'll know when the letter was written and the difference it made in that time. Letters had two primary purposes. They were to build or establish relationships. Or they were to show us one half, one side of a conversation. And when we find these letters, we try to imagine sometimes, what was the other half of that conversation? What was going on? Don't you wish we knew those things with all of the biblical letters? All New Testament letters, except 3 John, are addressed to a group of people. They assume familiarity with Jewish and Christian, early Christian traditions. They insert Old Testament quotations in these New Testament letters. Occasionally, there's a fragment or a piece of a hymn from back in the day that are inserted in these letters. Paul would do that, especially in the, in the book of Philippians. These letters were meant to be read in front of a congregation. And Paul sometimes would replace the typical health wish, I hope you're doing well and hope you're feeling well, hope the family's well, with a thanksgiving or a blessing for the group that the letter was addressed to. And that happened over and over and over again. Paul's letters contained many and very complex thanksgivings, complicated words sometimes, run-on sentences, 
his opening Thanksgiving often previewed the letter's main topic, and he often used these letters as times of exhortation for teaching and for correction. And there's a lot more to be said about letter writing in biblical days, and we'll refer to some of those things, some of those ideas, as we move through this series over the next couple of months. We'll save some of those for another day. But for the moment, I want us to turn our attention to a particular letter, the one where our scripture lesson comes from today, Second. Corinthians. According to Eugene Peterson, and some of you remember him, are familiar with his writings. He died, what, a year or two ago, maybe at the most. His version, his translation of the New Testament, the message, is one of the best known around. And I've read that and use it often. And I think some of you have too. Perhaps we've talked about that. But according to Eugene Peterson, the Corinthians Christians gave their founding pastor Paul more to be concerned about and more to worry about than all of his other churches put together. This was a group of people that tried his patience. It seems like no sooner did Paul get one problem straightened out in Corinth than three other problems popped up. And I don't know if somehow the image that came to my mind when I was thinking about this, one problem down, three more pop up, kind of a whack-a-mole thing with Paul trying to keep all these controversies pushed down and every time he did something else would would pop up and it's like he couldn't win. And for anyone operating under the naive presumption that to join a Christian church is a good way to meet all the best people and cultivate smooth social relations, and sometimes that happens, but read Paul's letters again very carefully. Read the book of Corinthians. Second Corinthians especially. However much trouble the Corinthians were to each other, and as much of a pain in the backside as they were to Paul, they proved to be for us, these letters, a cornucopia of blessings. Because as Paul addressed these difficult issues, he referred to things that we have latched onto and learned from and been blessed by across the years. So they were a tough crowd. And they triggered some of Paul's most profound and vigorous writing. The provocation for Paul's second letter to the Corinthians in Corinth was an attack on his leadership. Not that that's never happened, and that hasn't happened since, has it? Well, yeah, every day in different contexts, in different places. But in his first letter, he wrote most kindly and sympathetically to the Corinthians, but he didn't mince any words. He didn't pull any punches. He wrote with the confidence of authority of a pastor who understood what God's salvation was and how people who were living out that salvation in communities of faith and churches, the issues they would face and the difficulties they would encounter. At least some of what he wrote to them was hard to bear and hard to take. So they did what people do. They bucked his authority. They pushed back. They accused him of inconsistencies. They impugned his motives. They questioned his credentials. They didn't argue with what he had written. They simply denied his right to say those kind of things to them. They didn't want to hear it. And so Paul was forced to defend his leadership. So after mopping up a few of the details from his first letter, in this second letter, he appeals to them. He he challenges their thinking. And in the process, he describes the nature of leadership in a community of believers. Because leadership is necessarily 
an exercise of authority. Often the whole issue of power comes into play and how it's misused. But the minute it does that, it begins to have negative impact on the, those who are led and on the leaders. Paul studied the teachings of Jesus. Paul had the living Christ in his heart. He looked to Jesus for ways to connect people to God without Paul himself getting in their way and and interfering with that relationship. All who are called to exercise leadership in any capacity, parent or coach or teacher or manager or anything else, can be grateful to Paul for the letters that he wrote to the Corinthians and for the circumstances that provoked those letters. Because there's stuff here that can help us. And now let's look at that specific passage that I read a moment ago. 2 Corinthians 4.13 through 5.1. The passage begins with these words. We're not keeping this quiet. Not on your life. And what we believe is that the one who raised up the master Jesus will also raise us up with Jesus as well. I would think that it would go without saying that the greatest fear folk have, whether we admit it or not, it's sort of always there and we don't get very far from it at any time, is the fear of, of death. The fear of this life not continuing as we know it. It's a universal fear. Facing our mortality is not easy for anyone, even people of faith. We go through times of trial and struggle and Wondering what it's like. Having to leave all these things behind. All the people that we care for and stepping out into a great mystery is, is hard. And fear's not a wrong thing. And, and sometimes as Christian folks will say, I don't fear death. I've got it all worked out. We do. But it's honestly a difficult thing. And don't deny that. That's not a lack of faith. When we begin, though... To fully embrace what the Apostle Paul wrote here about our life with Christ, then that fear begins to subside and it does not have to control us and it does not have to limit our lives. And when Jesus the Christ takes out of us this heart of stone and replaces it with a beating heart of flesh, to use some biblical expressions, then we begin to love and serve others and we begin to embrace that resurrection hope that is ours in Christ. And how in the world can we keep quiet about that? Why would we? We have a story to tell. The hymn says a story to tell to the nations, but more often it's a story to tell to those folk next door. Sometimes the folk in our own house or the folk we work with or go to church with. We have a story to tell about how Christ has come into our hearts and changed our lives. And we look for opportunities by the way we live and the things we say to show that story, to tell that story. And there are folks who who need to hear it, who want to hear it. Keeping quiet is not an option. So, we're not keeping quiet. And according to verse 16, we're not giving up. Paul would resonate, his thoughts would resonate with a lot of folks today who feel like everything's falling apart. Or as a contemporary sage pointed out, what ain't nailed down is coming loose. But Paul wouldn't leave it there. He would go on to say to the Corinthians and to you and to me on the inside where God is making our life new. Not a day goes by 
without his abiding grace, his unfolding grace. In other words, God is holding us up by God's grace so that we might live out our calling as God's people, doing those things that we don't have the power and strength to do ourselves. Max Lucado talks about this in a little story he tells. Being lifted up as God's people. Lifted up by God. We can't do it by ourselves. He, I think it's a really neat story, and you can decide for yourself if it's a neat story or not. But he said when my nephew Lawson was three years old, he wanted to play basketball. A toe-headed spark plug of a boy, he delights in anything round and bouncy. When he spotted the basketball in goal in my driveway, his face lit up and he couldn't resist. The ball, however, was big as his midsection, and the goal was three times his height. His best try fell way short, he said, so I lowered the goal from 10 feet to 8 feet. And I led him closer to the target, and I showed him how to granny toss the ball. Nothing helped. The ball never threatened the net. So I gave him a lift higher and higher until he was eye level with the rim. Make a basket loss, and I urged, and he did. He rolled the ball over the iron hoop, and it dropped through swoosh. And how did little Lawson respond? Still cradled in my hands, he punched both fists into the air, and he shouted at the top of his lungs, all by myself. All by myself. Oh, sounds like us sometimes, doesn't it? A bit of an overstatement, don't you think, little fella? Who held you? Who steadied you? Who showed you the way? Aren't you forgetting somebody? We're not doing that. We're not keeping quiet about the greatest hope of all. We're not doing that. We're not giving up even when so much around us appears to be falling down. And we don't have to do it all by ourselves. What do you mean? You haven't heard about not giving up? You haven't heard about not quitting? What's the matter? Don't you people read your mail? Amen.